Welcome to the podcast of ideas. This week, to mark the publication of his new book, How Fear Works, Culture of Fear in the 21st Century, we feature sociologist, author and social commentator, Professor Frank Ferreira, in conversation with Academy of Ideas director, Claire Fox. The interview was recorded in May as part of Fox News Friday, Claire's temporary residency at Love Sport Radio. Aside from this podcast, you can catch up with interviews from all the guests who appeared on the show by visiting the archive at the Academy of Ideas profile page on SoundCloud. But for now, enjoy this conversation that ranges widely, from the nature of fear to the problems of safeguarding and whistleblowing to the regulation of football fans. Fox here, Fox News Friday, and we're now on to my guest of the day. I'm delighted to have Professor Frank Ferreira. Welcome, Frank. Hi there. Um, he's a sociologist, social commentator, so many books, but just to mention a few of the kind of very well-known ones, Paranoid Parenting, um, Wasted, Why Education is Not Educating, On Tolerance, uh, The Power of Reading, Why I'm to the University, Populism and the European Culture Wars. Look, I know that uh, um, Love Sport Radio readers are ordering these from the library as we speak, Frank, but what you're here to talk about is your forthcoming book, How Fear Works, Culture of Fear in the 21st Century. Um, I, I'm particularly fascinated by a climate at the moment of kind of scaremongering and moral panics and kind of a, a sense of people being quite fearful and frightened um, and I just was noticing because I was trying to hook these things around things that are going on in the news that in Germany there's a big debate going on because for example the crime figures have just come out in Germany broadly speaking crime is going down but the fear of crime is going up and we're kind of familiar with that kind of debate here somewhere becomes safer and everybody's more scared just kind of give us some headlines as to what you think goes on in those kind of instances. Well, I think what has happened is that fear is no longer uh, linked to any specific problem or is no longer linked to any specific threat. One of the interesting things that I've been working on is why is it that fear has become detached from any specific experience and has acquired its own autonomous, independent character. And, you know, you have a situation where suddenly people all start talking about the threat of a particular problem. You have uh, a variety of new panics being initiated almost every single week. And in my own work, one of the things I find that's particularly troublesome and also very interesting is that fear has become almost a, a, a vocabulary, a language through which we express our uh, views of the world. And very often the only thing that distinguishes different political parties, different politicians, different individuals from one another is what it is that they fear, what is the thing is particularly dangerous, and this is what we debate. We all agree that there are all these dangers out there, we just disagree on which one is more important than the other. Well, I think that it's like, I suppose it's just t- trying to untangle it, because there are some things that are real, and there are some things that are not real. So, you know, even though I was just talking about German crime figures going down, I mean, here, this is a London station, um, and if you look at the London Met figures, there is a troubling rise in serious crime in London. I mean, you know, at least murder rate is up 44%. 23% increase in gun crime, 21% uh, increase in knife crime in the year to March. And we all know, you know, kind of worried about young people at the moment. But then, on the other hand, if you look at some other figures, that's actually amazing that there's actually been a fall in 
transgender hate crime down 13%, a fall in anti-Semitism hate crime down uh, 5%, and there's actually been a fall in the number of um, incidents of domestic abuse. And guess what? The things that get all the headlines and that people talk about all the time are falling. So it, it seems to me as though the statistics and the truth doesn't matter, does it? Well, it doesn't. When it comes to fear, what matters is the propaganda is the uh, is, is the belief i mean fe- fear is very much linked to our subjective beliefs and our emotions and i think what's very interesting is that, as you said there are often some very real threats out there but very often they're not particularly sexy and i i remember uh traveling in africa and a lot of africans were telling me is you know why is it that you westerners never talk about malaria because that's something that we are t- concerned about you seem to be much more uh, concerned with some with with the AIDS, for example, which is a very sexy European disease in, in their eyes. And I think what they were really getting at is that, you know, what, what we decide to be the threat of the day or the threat of the week has got nothing to do with its objective reality. It's got to do with uh, with the political and the social and the cultural zeitgeist at that particular time. But I think the thing that's really difficult is that, you know, something like... Um Contemporary terrorist threats. Well, they're not just threats. I mean, I'm going to be talking later about the fact that there's kind of ISIS have just threatened the World Cup. And it's pretty nasty stuff, right? Uh, uh, Kind of some of the footballers. I mean, they're they're kind of sending, posting videos of people being beheaded and so on. Now, they're they're, they're threatening it. But they're kind of exploiting the culture of fear around ISIS. But it's not as though it's made up as any European, uh, 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 somebody in the European capital, never mind half the world, has experienced their barbarism at hand. So how do you distinguish between, I mean, we have to respond to real threats and then, People should be frightened of those, shouldn't they? Yeah, I, I think that we have to respond to real threats, and there are many threats out there. I'm, I wouldn't, uh, in any sense, demean people's concern with terrorism, for example. I think it's a very important issue. But I think it's a different question to be frightened of it, because I think what has happened is by, in a sense, becoming uh, obsessive about terrorism to the point at which we showed ISIS's video on TV and we kind of almost have this pornographic fascination with their beheading videos, we end up in a situation where all that ISIS is going to do is issue a statement, Mm. just get a piece of paper out, and everybody's going to be scared about it, and and the whole of the World Cup will get reorganized around the possibility that something might occur. And I think when we do that, then we end up terrorizing ourselves. We don't need terrorists to do it for us. And I think one of the arguments I put forward in the book, that there's a difference between dealing with terrorism smartly, intelligently, and ending up in the way that we're doing is terrorizing ourselves and, and ending up being complicit in our own paralysis. I mean, one of the things that's tricky is how to deal with some of these things. I mean, say, for example, we talk about the knife crime and gun crime. Then there's a kind of, we should have more police on the street. By the way, not necessarily to catch anyone, but that's because it's reassuring, people will say. Or what we've got to do is have less sensationalist journalism and give the facts, although that doesn't seem to work. Or then, But then you also get people exploiting it, like politicians sort of saying we need to regulate we need to clamp down on the internet uh hate speech and things that are frightening people so it's kind of used opportunistically so trying to untangle that how you kind of make people to be less scared well well, it seems to me that the key thing is to rely on ourselves Um, i'm a big believer in communities uh, building solidarity and and ensuring that the young people are safe, ensuring that uh, young people are discouraged from going down this particular road of committing uh, uh, knife crime. I really believe that the really important thing is, is, is to get people educated to understand that at the end of the day, 
you know, the only people that will really watch their back are their neighbors and family members. And that in, in the end, what police tend to do is what we call impression policing, where they kind of show up, they uh, reassure people that everything will be all right. But at the end of the day, they're not there when when the real problem hits the fan. Um, and so I, I suppose the, the, the other thing is just to recognize that even though when you're frightened, as you said, you shouldn't reorganize society around it or, you know, that that's the thing about the exploitation of it, that the politicians do opportunistically politicize fear. Yes, I think we need to recognize that we are fearful at times, quite rightly so, but we've got to develop a tactic of learning to live with it and, and develop a, a community spirit that uh, immunizes us from its worst consequences. Let me tell you, LBC, losers, wrong, fake news, real lightweights, believe me. Love Sport, 558 AM. Claire Fox here, Fox News Friday, and my guest of the day today is Frank Faraday, and we're talking about the culture of fear. Um, Frank, what I wanted to develop was this sort of idea that a kind of culture of fear has affected institutions and led to a bit of a risk-averse, watch-your-back mentality. Uh, there's a terrible story over the Easter holidays that came out of the uh, teaching unions conferences, which was, that really kind of upset me, I thought, summed it up, where... Um, uh, a, a teacher was suspended from school when he uh, was accused of groping pupils. He wasn't even there because he was on adoption leave. But the case went on for a year. Uh, the school suspended him for that whole time. Uh, while the, it was being investigated, the child was taken away from them. They spent years trying to adopt this child. And now they'll never get that child back. And his own son, teenager, he can't spend any time on his own with him. And he's, and he's not guilty with it. I mean, completely clear of the allegations. And what really upset me was the behaviour of all the different institutions. Everybody scared that they might be seen to be. So I know that's a kind of stretch on the culture of fear, but you know that kind of institutionalised fear that somebody might think something's happening, all in the name of safeguarding as well, and the whole safeguarding is a reaction to fear. So just any comments on that kind of issue? Well, I think that's become very prominent, the way which institutions end up... Uh, watching their back and and their motto is you know regardless of its human consequences it's far better to follow this process this piece of paper that somebody published you know uh, in a different world who has got no idea what's really going on and i think one of the dangers that, that has occurred is that institutions what they basically do have got no incentive in telling somebody we know you're all right we we know you you know thoroughly we've been working with you for years we we know you're a nice guy and there's absolutely no problem with you uh, instead of following their genuine human instinct, what they end up doing is basically isolating, ostracizing, and marginalizing an individual. And the human costs of this are really, really high. I mean, I've known examples where parents had their kid taken away from them just on the hearsay that some doctor or a nurse or other professional suspected that instead of uh, the football injury that their child received, the, the poor kid was beaten up. Even the other parents were saying, we saw the child get injured on the football field. Nevertheless, the parents were in hot water for a very, very long time. And the tragedy is, is that once you're in this situation, you're kind of scarred for life because people will always suspect you uh, of doing something terrible to your child, even though you've been, uh, you've been found to be uh, completely innocent. But it just seems to me at the moment, particularly in relation to safeguarding in children, that everybody's frightened. So you've got 
Um, the mobilisation of the fears of parents who undoubtedly, I mean, I mean, rightly, want to protect their children. So if they're having all these messages bombarded at them that your child is a threat of the local paedophile, but even the local football coach, but, you know, anyone, or even sugary drinks on the one yeah. hand, then you've got institutions that are scared that somebody in their organisation might be accused of something. And then if you work in an organisation, you'll know this yourself, somebody was just saying it earlier... It, the irony the con- con- um, that, that somebody was saying that you can't get people to mentor women in business anymore because men are frightened to mentor women in business in case somebody accuses them on a Me Too thing. So everyone is behaving like scared. So we're just completely frozen, aren't we? Yeah, we kind of develop this incredible distance between human beings. So a lot of academics are too scared to, to close their doors when they talk to their students. A lot of academics really watch themselves. They no longer allow themselves to make jokes and have these kind of, you know, a drink at the bar in the way we used to in the past. And the quality of their education really suffers. But the experience that always haunts me, I remember about uh, 15 years ago when my son was injured on the football field, I took him to emergencies. And there were all, the, all these other parents there with kids with broken bones. And they were all, in a sense, talking to each other. Kind of, they were laughing, making jokes. But I hope social workers are going to come and take our kids away. But even though they were joking, they were actually deadly serious and deadly worried and very defensive when they were talking to the doctor. And that that is not not good for anybody. No, but it's also the case that that young people sort of internalise this. On the one hand, either kind of see all adults as dodgy, but also because they're young, they can exploit it as well. So somebody was, uh, some sixth former was telling us recently about somebody, a teacher put their hand on the shoulder of a pupil. I mean, hand on shoulder, right? Um, and sort of said something witty. And the, the student turned around and said, oh, is this a Me Too moment, right? And you know what I mean? Anyway, somebody else in the class then reported the jokey exchange. You know what I mean? So everyone's defensive, then it gets reported, and of course, guess what? It got disciplined. Yes, I think these days, the bizarre things you can get disciplined for, I think basically what it says is you you can no longer be uninhibited, you can no longer be yourselves. You always got to watch yourself, because nobody is going to back you up when push comes to shove in these situations. Yeah, I mean, I, I suppose the only other thing is just the converse of the artificial way that people try and deal with this because i i think that people now do recognize that maybe we've gone too far in a way of scaremongering around children and play for example and like the very first show i did i had uh dr helena goldberg on i think you know and um i was asking her about this new phenomenon would you believe of risky playgrounds where they're actually making playgrounds more risky um to try and inculcate young people with a sense of risk taking and you know whereas they you couldn't play conkers a few years ago now that it's almost compulsory conquer playing and i kind of thought that was a kind of nice idea and yet a bit mad as well because it kind of missed the point because it was institutionalizing risk taking and not being safe if you know what i mean yeah because uh, children learn about risk when there are no adults around they don't need an artificial playground that, that manages their risk behavior i think that the very moment you do that you end up continuing and perpetuating precisely this risk aversion you're talking about what kids really need is a park or a, a playing field where there are very few adults around and where they can just be themselves and interact with each other and stretch each other and make fun of each other and develop an understanding of their strengths and weaknesses. So would that, in that instance then, just to, to kind of listeners of the show, are you kind of advocating that if you're a parent that you kind of gulp down your fear? Because undoubtedly children are vulnerable in many ways, from the baby through to infants and so on. I'm not suggesting we throw lots of infants near the side of a cliff, but, but nonetheless you have to kind of say to yourself 
I know that my child might get run over, but I'm going to just hold my nerve. Is that kind of what you're encouraging? Well, I, Not an institutionalised sense of that, but you know what I mean? People might be frightened, but you shouldn't act on it all the time. Well, you will definitely be frightened. The moment your child takes their first step down a stair, every parent has their heart beating all the time, and you've got to ask yourself, am I going to let the kid walk down by himself, or am I just going to pick him up and delay him gaining independence? And I think that very early lesson is something we've got to understand you know, later on in life as kids get older and older. I've never cheated in my life, I swear. Just ask my asthmatic cycling friends. They know. Believe me. Claire Fox here, Fox News Friday. And we just uh, got some a few minutes uh, uh, with my guest, Frank Faraday, before the news, although he's going to come back and join us after the news as well. Um, but we're talking about a culture of fear and... Um, I just wanted to tell listeners about a story that's been in the newspapers in the last week or so um, and then ask Frank about it, which is this is an academic, Richard Ed Lebo, who was over at a conference in America and uh, he's, over the last couple of weeks, faced disciplinary hearing because he did this unbelievably unforgivable crime, which was that he was in a lift, a crowded lift with people, and somebody from the back of the lift said, what floor? And he said, ladies' laundry. Now, it seems to me that that reply indicates something about his age. It might indicate that he's not particularly good at telling jokes, but what one would not have anticipated would be that it would turn into an international incident in which uh, an academic of long-standing and great respect would be treated as though they were a misogynic threat to all women and so on and so forth um and i suppose what i wanted to ask you frank was what really struck me was the lift was crowded full with academics one woman in a crowded lift who happens to be uh, a professor of women's and gender studies but i say no more um actually didn't say that's a stupid joke, but actually waited and then went and reported it to the authorities. So I wanted to d dwell on this kind of atmosphere, which is what I consider to be the greatest culture of fear I experience all the time, which is of call-out culture and offence. And academia is particularly bad at it. But any comments on that story initially? Well, there's two things. One is it reminds me of my youth when I lived in Stalinist Hungary, where people routinely reported uh, other people to, to the authorities behind people's back. They never said, why did you say this? They simply went to the police and said, so-and-so had made this anti-state remark, you know, something should be done. And I think that this kind of uh, reporting of people uh, very much smacks of a soft totalitarian impulse, uh, which is what's really worrying. But even more worrying is that people like her, and, and there are a lot of people that are in academia, are just looking to be offended, are basically, they have this kind of radar out there, and the slightest possibility that a particular sentence or a phrase could be recast as an insult, as an offensive threat to them, is, is then uh, sort of treated as a cultural crime. And I think what's, what is particularly concerned of me is I, I, I like jokes, I like humor. I know that very often you and I and everybody else will make the wrong type of jokes. We often uh, insult people by, by mistake. Sometimes we insult people by intentionally. But that's part of humor. Humor is, is really about the free flow of, 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 of ideas, of, of, of laughing at each other, of laughing at ourselves. And it seems to me that if we then empty humor of meaning by regulating it, by forcing people to watch their words, we do end 
you know, fundamentally undermine the quality of life for people. And I, and I, I do think that these, uh, these individuals who are reporting others for the jokes that they made uh, are, are really the ones that should be uh, sort of targeted and with, 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 with real uh, sort of misanthropy, that a real loathing of human beings and, 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 and of humour. I mean, that's the thing that struck me. I mean, it really reminded me a little bit, anyway, of um, what happened to Sir Tim Hunt, the, the, the cancer scientist who kind of made some kind of off-guard, jokey comment when he was speaking at a conference on in Korea about girls crying in the labs and falling in love with people. And even though his defence was it was a joke, everybody said, no, no, it indicates. But listen to this from Professor Sharoni. I mean, talking about humanists, right? She says, the issue is not the intent of the comment, nor the content or historical cultural context of the joke. What we should be talking about is systematic sexism and racism and other isms and the persistence of misogyny in the workplace and the violent response of men when they are told when they are held accountable. All he was asked to do was to apologise. So she's turned an asking of an apology into violence against women. I mean, talk about humorless as a response, but that's kind of scary talk. You can escalate a small trivial incident into what is effectively a historic abuse of women, race, everybody. Well, escalation is an understatement. I think what happens is that these days the word violence is uh, attached to all kinds of experiences that in, in previous times would have been seen as fairly normal, as unexceptional. And I think that these days violence has got such a subjective character to it that it, it, it's no longer has any kind of real meaning. And, and the, what's even scarier than what she said is the assumption behind it is that whether something is violent or not, is determined not by the intent of that particular individual, but by how somebody interprets it. And if you happen to interpret a, a, a stare or e- interpret a remark as a form of violence, then you are the only person. You get to decide whether violent or not. And that kind of uh, monopoly over truth, which is what she's really claiming, is to me a, a symptom of a, of a soft totalitarian impulse of basically saying, I get to decide everything about how we live our lives. I mean, it basically says that context doesn't matter. It doesn't matter how you can explain something, I will decide. And so something can blow up in, in that way. And it strikes me that that's something that none of us are going to be able to negotiate or live with very easily. Love Sport on 558 AM, online and on digital radio. Fox News on Friday with Claire Fox. Claire Fox here, Fox News Friday, and my guest of the day today is Professor Frank Brady, sociologist and social commentator, and we're talking about, and have done before the break, some of the themes in his forthcoming book, How Fear Works, Culture of Fear in the 21st Century. We were talking about, Frank, this um, academic that uh, made a joke in a lift and has been disciplined. Um, I, I wanted to just uh, say, we were saying that context doesn't matter. You were saying humour matters hugely to people. The fact this was a joke was not a defence. But I thought it was interesting as well that character didn't matter either. Now, I, I know that it doesn't... You know, it just struck me, it was so weird. You know, this was a kind of enlightened 
liberal professor, impeccable credentials in terms of fighting women's rights, all the rest of it. Nobody cared. I mean, he was just absolutely done over. His wife actually teaches gender and law. And she says she knows quite a lot about real cases of sexual harassment and how difficult they are to take, uh, you know, to kind of to act on. And then you kind of get the trivialising of these things. I just thought that was important because, you know, we're not talking about somebody who's got a history of kind of... This isn't Weinstein, is all I'm saying. Do you know what I mean? And yet he's absolutely pilloried in this instance, in certain circles. Do you think character matters in terms of what you say? Or should we use that to judge people? Well, we should, but it it doesn't matter anymore. I think what, what I find really interesting is that if you read the newspapers, every day two or three people are apologizing for some remarks that they have made. And you know and I know that when they apologize, it has no meaning whatsoever. It's a ritual that they have to perform. It's a kind of ritual of self-abasement that's expected of you. And institutions do it, and everybody, every, everybody does it, because if you don't apologize, you fear that you're going to be pilloried. And that's why you have very few people who actually get up and say, well, too bad what you, what you think. I'm not apologizing. That's me. That's the joke that I made. I stand by it. That kind of bravery, that kind of uh, willingness to stand up and be counted and not just simply roll over is very, very rare these days. And that tells us this uh, uh, zeitgeist, this insidious spirit that's haunting people, the fear of being uh, sort of ostracized and, and humiliated is so powerful that institutions and individuals will apologize. They know that that person is perfectly normal, perfectly all right, did nothing wrong. Uh, that's the way these things are at the moment. And even I, I've got to say to the listeners that uh, I've never been inside a lady's lingerie department, <laughs> nor do I intend to be, you know, sort of, yeah. just to put that on, re- on the record. Yeah, just in case, just in case. Um, but just, but it's interesting, isn't it? Because I think you're right that it's become an act of bravery that you don't apologise. I mean, I was, we were talking earlier with another guest, Helen Dale, about uh, uh, Vanity Von Glow, the, the, the drag queen who's kind of been acute, you know, lost loads of work because uh, dared speak at a free speech rally organised by Tommy Robertson, even though she's a member of the Labour Party. And she wouldn't back off. She kind of wouldn't do the mayor culpa and it made it worse. And in this instance, what I thought was really vile, actually, was that this particular professor um, got in more trouble from his International Studies Association because he wouldn't apologise. And he kind of said, once I apologise, I'm admitting I did something wrong and I didn't. But he did contact the the complainant to kind of have a civil adult conversation and say I don't know why you were upset you know what was the problem and that was then deemed as being even more problematic and was seen as harassing so this means we'll never speak to each other well that's the whole point the point is is that once you've been accused uh, you are guilty and and in this inquisitorial spirit uh, which used to dominate the world in the middle ages has now acquired this kind of glamour and, and, and respectability and we've now lost sight of the fact that at the end of the day, basically judge people to be guilty and, and, and basically ref- refuse to allow them to engage or to converse with the people that has uh, attacked them or has kind of reported them, then what we end up is, 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 a, is, a, is a very, very horrible situation. And in academia, unfortunately, uh, bravery is in very, very short supply. I often fear for the future when I talk to my fellow professors who very often confide in me and they say, you know, Frank, I'm really glad that you're saying what you're saying, but we are not in a position to do what you're doing because we're worried about our jobs. And I tell them, actually, we don't live in the middle of a Stalinist era. This is not Nazi Germany. You could stand up and be counted. And if you 
stood up and recounted, and others did the same thing, then this kind of horrible uh, sort of uh, totalitarian spirit would be severely undermined. Yeah, I mean, I, 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 I absolutely admire that spirit, and I want to encourage it. I mean, I, th- I think that the, um, in case listeners haven't read it, that, that Professor Leber re- actually wrote a very fine article in the, in the Daily Mail yesterday, which I know is even saying the words Daily Mail might be get enough to get cause offence to some people, but it was really explained what he was up against. But what to note is that he was an International Studies Association Distinguished Scholar of the Year only a few years ago, and now they're kind of hounding him out and trying to shame him. But I think that that's why, why I think people get scared. I mean, just go on the culture of fear. I mean, this is a distinguished professor, and he can be treated like this. Now, I wanted to kind of move on to... It's a similar kind of snitching story amongst students, which has very much disturbed me over the last week or two, which is that there was a group of students in at Warwick University who were involved in a, a private Facebook group. Um, and in their banter, a lot of it was very unpleasant banter, by the way, because it, it's been revealed now, they were making rape jokes and some using some racist language and so on. But what was extraordinary, this was a small group, you know, it's like 15 people in this group, and somebody screens... Sh- um, shot the, the, some of the, the more offensive things. They've been reported they've been suspended from the university. Their careers are ruined, effectively. Faces all over the place, humiliated. And what really dawned on me was not that I was shocked by what they were saying, although what they were saying was quite shocking, um, but I was really shocked that students would be aiming to get their fellow students kind of done over like that. And that 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 was the main thing that we had to kind of take from this was you as a responsible citizen have got to report when people say bad things that creates a climate of fear doesn't it well it does and i and i and i remember in my youth there was a basic uh, rule which everybody adhered to which is that no matter how much you disagree with somebody no matter how much you hated what they did you would never report them i mean there was a basic solidarity between uh, our peers and and that allowed us uh, a certain amount of freedom. It, it gives, gave us a certain amount of confidence that we can make our way in the world. And today, what we have is a is a reporting culture. And I think it's very interesting because the word whistleblowing has been celebrated, and the argument is that whistleblowers are these heroes of the day. But the the whole term whistleblowing now means something very different than in the past. Because in the past, it was something you did very rarely in exceptional circumstances where you as the whistleblower paid a very, very high price for revealing something that other people have done. Today, whistleblowers don't pay a high price. They're celebrated. And they're not whistleblowers because what they do is create a situation where other people pay a high price, the ones they kind of informed on. So the whole inform- informing uh, culture has totally altered the way it was in the past. Claire Fox here, Fox News Friday. And Frank Freddy and I are having a very interesting conversation about a kind of call-out culture being frightened to speak our minds a kind of report a tendency to report things and snitch that's become institutionalized that whistleblowers are no longer the brave ones and because actually they're calling on other people to be disciplined and so on but one of the things that in relation to this warwick university story frank of the 11 students who've been uh, suspended by the university after they were uh, complained about by people in a private messaging group is that it's now led to a panic on campus right about women so this is the headlines from the, from the newspapers i've never felt more threatened girls at warwick speak out against the boys group chat and two thousand people sign petition to increase the punishment of the 11 warwick rape joke boys chat chat boys so then i thought god this is worse you've got a climate of fear 
by having a private conversation amongst your mates, even if you're behaving badly on PC and saying horrible things because somebody might report you. But then this leads to an exacerbated atmosphere of everybody's a rapist or more at university, they're all racist and so on. And, and so it's just like, that's why I say about things escalating. You can't get anything to ratchet down. Yeah, in, in my book I write a lot about this because what, we, what you're describing is what I call the performance of fear. And, and what it means is basically you say, oh, I've never felt so threatened in my life as I do today. Oh, my campus is so dangerous and so risky. I dare not walk from my class uh, to, the, to the library. And because of this kind of climate that's been created where it's quite fashionable to tell people just how scared you are about everything, you're kind of performing fear, what you end up doing is you're kind of creating the impression, which is widely held now, that universities are the most dangerous places in the world. I mean, that's, yeah. that's the impression you get when you listen to the academics talking about universities. And these are the people who have got no idea what a dangerous situation is. I mean, Afghanistan is very dangerous. Many inner city areas... You know, where you have uh, a degree of violence, are dangerous. Traffic on the road is dangerous. But universities, compared to most other situations in the world, are very peaceful, very pleasant places, which is why these individuals allow themselves to perform fear with such abandon. Um, but, you know, uh, one of the things I know that you're interested in, as, as indeed am I, is, and you make the point, I think, that the ascendancy of a culture of fear is paralleled by a cultivation of helplessness and uh, a heightened sense of anxiety. And I think I was just illustrating that with that story of now young women on Warwick are scared because of hearing this kind of chat behind the scenes. But anyway, there's a recent report by Universities UK called Minding Our Future um, about the number of students dropping out with mental health problems. Apparently that's more than trebled in recent years. But I, I think it's not just university students. I mean, even though nearly 50% of the population now go to university, for listeners on Love Sport, you know, maybe think, oh, it's just namby-pamby students. There's a broader atmosphere, isn't there, of a kind of mental health crisis. Everybody's got anxiety kids at schools doing tests i know you follow this carefully people say there's a mental health crisis but can you just talk through that kind of sense of helplessness anxiety how culture of fear makes us feel mentally ill or even makes us mentally ill well it does i, I think what what i argue and what i've seen with my own eyes is that as we socialize young people to uh, uh, interpret their problems of everyday life in a psychological language as we turn every problem in the world into a, a mental health problem. So you're no longer shy, you have social phobia. <laughs> in the, you're no longer just an active kid, you got an, you know, somehow hyperactivity. When we psychologize the world, then what we gradually do is we dispossess young people of their capacity for resilience and for independence. And we actually unwittingly make them feel weak and powerless. And we disempower them. And I think that the systematic disempowerment of the younger generation by the adult world to the use of a mental health language does at a certain point have very grave, disastrous consequences because it creates a public health problem where young people, after a while, you know, be begin to play the role that's assigned to them. They do begin to feel disoriented and confused and weak. And in a sense, this kind of mental health crusade does become a self-fulfilling prophecy. And I've seen with my own eyes how people have, who have been told that they are, you know, they have a certain symptom, they have a certain diagnosis, do end up being ill as a result of that. And I think this is an illness that we've created rather than something that somehow, you know, came about as a result of a word of God or, or as an act of nature. Well, I mean, I agree with you. I mean, I, I, I write about this, you know, inspired indeed by many of the things that you 
written previously in books in, in in my book i find that offensive so listeners you should all read my book i find that offensive just a little <laughs> advert break um yeah but anyway I, I so i talk about this a lot um uh, this issue of mental health and the self-fulfilling crisis at a lot of universities and schools and so on but the thing is you know i can see how it how it happens because if you kind of strip people of the wherewithal if you if, if you kind of tell people that kind of words and language and so on are going to damage them and cause them psychological problems for the rest of their lives and you know they're overprotected and overcoddled from as you said earlier about playing outside and exploring and learning boundaries they actually can't cope i mean it's not a myth i mean they're, they're, they're not coping so when faced with something quite pressurized like exams or deadlines or or, you know life because some horrible things happen in life you can see a a kind of real inability to 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 pull out the reserves of strength of character that you need to kind of i mean just actually be a human being but they haven't got it they're very exposed and raw and i really worry i don't know whether i'm having my own moral panic but i worry about them not coping well so do i and i think that obviously there are young people who are not like that, who are idealistic and strong. But I do worry. I mean, very recently I had a discussion with a group of 21-year-old kids who just started working, and they were all complaining about the pressure of work. And I said, well, what do you mean by the pressure of work? And what they basically meant was that they had to work seven and a half hours a day. (laughs) And for them, that was just an an impossible ask. And, uh, you know, when I asked, well, why why are you stressed? What's pressure? Basically, it was about keeping time, arriving, you know, at nine o'clock or 9.30 and and having to be there until 4.30 or 5. And I think the way they described their work experience was bizarre because they were describing a very laid-back, normal work experience, but they were using a psychological language to explain their own illness, their own inability to deal with that in, in, a, in mental health terms. And I think the fact that they've done this is not their fault. I think the adult world has created the situation. And you were talking about, I mean, obviously these are trends, generational trends, but it doesn't mean that therefore every young person under 25 is kind of on the brink of a nervous breakdown or anything. But what it does mean is, is that the whole language and the whole... W- prism through which we see things and I, I think that then affects other young people so a lot of the people that the academy of ideas works with and you're obviously very resilient and and, I, and I are actually frustrated by these trends and wanting to challenge them but they actually get silenced as a kind of chilling example because if they try and challenge some of these trends they're accused of being psychologically harmful to people and people say well you know if you, you or you're triggering me or you know i can't listen to this and so it kind of becomes a, a it also becomes an opportunistic way of closing down discussion as well yeah and you get accused of being in denial you know if yeah, you yeah. basically say that you know I- i'm coping all right there's no problem people accuse you of somehow being dishonest and unable to acknowledge your inner mental pain and and i think that there's this weird idea that if you're getting on with life and you're happy and you're you know sometimes you have setbacks and sometimes you feel sad but you don't uh, sort of report a mental health diagnosis that somehow you're even worse uh, affected by mental illness than the ones that are openly talking about it all the time. Yeah, I mean, I think I think as well. The other thing that happens though is that people accuse you of being inhumane. You know, inhumane. I mean, yeah. uh, I I kind of recently spoke at a psychotherapist conference. I mean, you know, more for me speaking at the National Psychotherapy Conference, maybe. But anyway, but they split the room, by the way, because it was like mixed views. But you know, some people sort of saw me as a kind of brutal, inhumane person who doesn't care that young people are self-harming, that I personally was kind of responsible for kind of student suicides and 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 my lack of care or my kind of you know and that sort of thing i mean as it happens interestingly other therapists actually admitted that they were seeing more and more young people who had a 
sense of their own fragility and vulnerability based on very little difficult psychotherapists to dig deep into the psyche when what people were saying was i i'm so distressed because i'm facing exams because even they thought well, you don't need a therapist you need to get over yourself you know what i mean so you kind yeah. of got a mixed result response well well if i know a lot of therapists who are horrified by these developments because uh, the point that they make is that by f- by, by basically uh, artificially creating a public health crisis we're diverting resources from people with real chronic mental health issues and you know and there are people that are really suffering and they don't get the resources they need on the national health because we're spending all this time uh, in a sense kind of creating problems of our own making. Claire Fox here, Fox News Friday. I've got Professor Frank Frady here. He's a sociologist. People assume that people like you, who are very important public intellectuals, don't know anything about sport. But it ends up that you're a Spurs fan and that actually you might have something to say. And mind you, that doesn't necessarily mean you know much about sport. But anyway, tell us about being a Spurs fan. And I particularly want you to mention the controversy that there sometimes is about uh, the self-description Yid Army, because I know you've written about that as well. So anyway. Well, I should begin by saying that I hope I sell a lot of books because I just got my season's ticket for for, for Spurs. <laughs> it's a lot of money. Um, <laughs> <laughs> so I need to cover that. Uh, I am a Spurs fan and I love going to the game. I go to every single home game and a few away games when I get a chance. Uh, and I'm particularly delighted... Uh, as you know, that the England team in the World Cup has got uh, five of us playing for them. The whole spine, from Harry Kane all the way to the back, uh, uh, is, is, is kind of manned by Spurs football players, which shows you the contribution that our team is making to uh, English football. But more importantly, uh, as you're asking, you know, I'm a member of the Yid Army, and I really resent the fact that people have said that uh, our slogans are in some shape or form anti-Semitic. It, it, it cannot understand how, for us, uh, being part of the Yid Army is a source of pride that's got a, a long-standing legacy. Uh, it's something that we feel very, very good about. And I want to assure all you listeners that no matter what kind of rules and laws are brought into being, people will go on shouting about the Yid Army because it's, part of, it's in our DNA, in a sense, to be like that. And I just wish people would stop trying to regulate the way we live our lives as football fans and and go on and do something a little bit more constructive right so uh, that's very interesting because I, i'm about to be joined by my colleagues um adam rawcliffe and uh, jeff kidder my regular crew actually on the sports and politics section and one of the things that we try to do the last half hour of every show is to look at what happens when sports turn into a political football get it everybody but anyway <laughs> but um the kind of politicization of sport and one of the themes actually since i've been doing this show has been the kind of sanitization of football in particular the kind of no standing you know the, the regulation of what fans sing and so on and so forth and i think that kind of yid army argument is part of that isn't it but just in terms of going to the football maybe because we've been talking about people behaving informally and privately chatting on Facebook and getting reported. Going to the football where you let off steam and as fans often chant inappropriate sectarian things, the state and football clubs are all over this now trying to stamp it out, stamp it out. They're stamping out spontaneity, aren't they? And really being a football fan. I think think so. And, And I think that this is something that is deeply resented by fans, uh, and, and people often rebel against it. I was very delighted at the last match in White Hart Lane last year, when uh, that, was, that was going to be the end of the old stadium, when, I, when everybody stood up all the way through the game. Nobody was sitting down despite all the rules. 
And when the game ended and we beat Man United, everybody invaded the pitch. And that was like done without any discussion. Nobody talked about it. But people felt that they could be themselves uh, for this one particular game. And I think that what that indicated is that for many of us, being a football fan is being, uh, being open to being able to express ourselves in terms of who we are. And I think that uh, to deny us that kind of right is extremely uh, sort of um, extremely you know, sort of dangerous and totalitarian. And I just wish that people would realize that most football play, uh, uh, fans, the vast majority of us, are basically honest and decent people, you know, who wouldn't hurt a fly. And, and, and just because we yell and shout and, and make fun of one another, you know, that's, that should be cherished rather than, in a sense, pathologized. Okay, brilliant. So, uh, Frank, tell me just what, last sentence. When, when is the book out? And what's the full title of it? The book is out on June the 14th. It's called the calls, uh, It's called How Fear Works, Culture of Fear in the 21st Century. And it is, I think, uh, a very interesting book for most people because it deals with something intangible that we don't often recognize. But nevertheless, we almost think about it every single day. And it's, uh, I think you should follow Frank on, on uh, Fra- Frank Freddy on Twitter as well because he kind of always tweets very interesting articles indicating some of these more regressive trends and occasionally you see him as a mad uh, Spurs fan and, and part of the Yudami as well. Um, thank you for proving that the major public intellectuals of our time are human too and a sports sport. Thank you for joining me on Fox News Friday. Frank. Pleasure. Take care.